Um, we're going to do our memory verses. You ready? I don't know that I have the last ones memorized. Here we go. Ready? His divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. Through these, he has given us his very great and precious promises so that through them we may participate in the divine nature and escape the corruption in the world caused by evil desires. For this very reason, make every effort— I'm sorry, add your faith, good— goodness, knowledge, to knowledge, self-control, to self-control, perseverance, to perseverance, godliness, to godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If anyone does not have them, he is nearsighted and blind and has forgotten that he has been cleansed from past sins. If therefore, my brothers, be all the more eager to make your calling and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never fall, and you will receive a rich welcome into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Over the last uh, few weeks, we've been talking about um, what it means and looks like to be resilient in a time like 2020, whether it's just a stress test for you, it hasn't been a catastrophic year, but it's been, a little, it's been odd and difficult, or whether it's been just the hardest year of your life. Um, one of the things we've tried to talk about is what, is it, what does it look like, and how, does, how can we engage with Jesus such that we can be resilient for ourselves so that we don't lose our faith or fail or implode, or secondly, so that we can continue to love, that there's actually, we have more than enough, and that it overflows in such a way as to that we have, we have something to share with others. We can minister to other people. We can love them. We can serve them. We can be there for them. Um, over the course of the series, we talked about six things, right? One was that we need to realize that God is after the heart, that he wants to heal the heart, change the heart, have the heart. He doesn't just want our heart to be 100% devoted to him. He actually wants to grow our capacity to love so that we can be full-hearted and give him 100% of a grown heart. Right? Secondly, that that has to be built on the foundation of the gospel, that it is the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, everything that he taught, and everything he's brought us towards as his disciples, that is the foundation of having the kind of heart that God wants us to have and to give to himself, right? The third thing is, is that we have to, we have to keep up our spiritual fervor serving the Lord, like it says in Romans 12. That is that, like, we have to, we have to tend the fire of our heart, that there is a, there is work that we do relative to our own emotional life and well-being and to our own devotion and what we care about and what we are fervent for and what we worship, and that we have to actively take a role in that and cultivate it, right? The, f the fourth thing is um, to be ready to do the next good thing, to recognize that um, God has put something in front of us, and that is the next thing we have to do. We don't have to stress about the distant future, and we don't have to beat ourselves up about the past. What we need to focus on is that God has something for us to do today that has purpose and significance, if nothing more than to bear it in service of Him, but it usually has much more significance than that if we have eyes to see it, right? The fifth thing is that we need to tend to our weakening wounds. Almost all of us have received wounds living under the curse. Those wounds hurt us in emotional ways, that are connected to how we experience things spiritually, how our soul functions, how our devotions work, how full our heart is, how much emotion we have the capacity for, and all those kinds of things. But there's a limitation of our spiritual development when we are emotionally broken. And so the emotional wounds that really weaken us need to be healed. And the Bible all the way through represents God as a healer. 
and he wants to do the work of healing us. You heard a good bit about that last week. The last thing is taking shelter in fellowship. I don't use the word fellowship lightly here. Um, the, the word fellowship in the scriptures represents a covenantal relationship between people that is extremely significant, such that it's normally referred to um, in the language of siblings, brothers and sisters. That um, the fellowship of believers is a new community of people that is more foundational than your family relations, than your ethnicity, than your politics, than any other form of tribalism that could affect your life. It's more foundational than any of that. It is the most fundamental and the most foundational unity of every Christian believer if you understand who you are in Christ and if you are in Christ. And that that new community of believers, what, what is called the church, is a shelter under which God cares for people, loves them, heals them, protects them, provides for them, helps them. And almost none of us are sufficient in and of ourselves, even if we're very industrious people. There's an old classic that people used to read when people still read classics during their education um, called Robinson Crusoe by William Defoe. And in that book, Robinson Crusoe gets stranded on an island. He goes back and forth between the ship that got right, and he gets all these tools and supplies and everything. So he's not by himself in the state of nature. He has the goods of society. He has, he has guns and axes and like all kinds of tools and he can eke out a life for himself in a little hut with dried fruits and stuff, but he can't rescue himself. He can't do—he can't build a boat to get off the island, though he tries. And it's not till later in the book when one other human appears, when his ability to do things multiplies significantly with just one other human being, right? We are the sort of creatures that because of our, our intelligence and capability of imagination, but our limitations physically, we can do so much more with just one other person. Hence— God's creation of the human family, two people to do life together, to create a fertile home, to do and accomplish life together, right? But in addition to that, wider groups of people and tribes of people that are brought together for specific purposes, who have a shared culture, who can accomplish much more together. Most of the things we enjoy in our lives are the product of broad human cooperation. And God has— God didn't create us so as to be lonely people or loners or alone, and especially not in things social, and the most social thing is our spiritual life, right? The most fundamental commandment in following Jesus is to love God, which is social, even though the other person in that loving relationship is immaterial, right? But in addition to that, we're supposed to love one another, which is a fundamentally social command, right? Now, um, what we're finding is that in this particular moment in COVID, that um, issues of loneliness and people not being related to each other and people not coming together for what human beings need has risen dramatically. My friend Adam Avery said, um, especially during the times when we were all under lockdown, he said, we've responded in a certain kind of medical way to COVID-19, but in a very inhuman way to COVID-19. I completely agree with that. Um, one of the reasons we actually fought to open the school, even though the, the county wanted to shut us down, was that we believed that in the trade-off, right, people, people want to live a risk-free life. I understand that. I understand that people want to live risk-free. And so if, if that means nobody leaves their house and that's the only way to be risk-free, let's do it, right? Because health is the most important thing. But that's not really true, right? Lots of people's health are being destroyed by our sequestration. More, I, I listened to a Stanford doctor say last week that more people are going to starve to death because of our lockdowns during COVID-19, then are going to die of COVID-19 or would have otherwise. More than 100 million people globally, right? There is no way to live a life in this world that is risk-free. There's nothing that's risk-free. No relationship, no economic relationship, no job, no family, nothing 
There's nothing that's risk-free. And so when we enter into certain kinds of relations, we need to realize that there's the social connections are oftentimes as important as anything else, right? Um, One survey found that a quarter of men, adult men under 30, have contemplated suicide during COVID time. I've sat with several of them and talked with them, right? Something like 55% of people say that they are experiencing significant loneliness that's affecting their medical mental health in a measurable way. And this goes on. If you Google loneliness epidemic or mental health relative to COVID, you'll find a whole bunch of things. Um, but it's, it's more than that. It's not just COVID-19. One of the things that we have to recognize about the nature of our relationships with each other is that there, there are at least— there's, of course, there's lots of things, but I tend to spend the whole sermon on this, so I'm going to try to keep it narrowed down, right? There's, there's a number of things in modern life that weaken the nature of the bonds of covenantal fellowship, okay? One is economically, we benefit from the enormous expansion of economic production that produces consumables. So consumable is something that you buy because you want it. It does something for you, and when you're done with it, you throw it away, okay? Now, this is really great, okay? Like, I like toilet paper. I, like, I like consumables. Don't get me wrong. However, the dynamic of economics that, that this creates is a fundamental change to transactional relationships. That is, the, our relationship with economic systems and stores and all kinds of other things is transactional. Like, I give you something, you give me something. It's a deal. I I know the price of it, and that's figured in. And people don't realize how much that dynamic, that transactional dynamic that comes to us through our economics, which is a huge benefit, filters its way into our relationships. So that increasingly our—even our familial and marital relationships, but definitely our friendship relationships, are more and more transactional in their function rather than covenantal in their function. That is an enormous change, right? Secondly is is digital. we are more connected, yet people are more lonely than they've ever been. And the reason for that is, is that digital connections are not intimate connections. They are personal in one sense, but they're deeply impersonal in another, partly because they matter in social structures, in terms of social media, by how many likes they get, and how broad their appeal, and so on, and how you look to other people, which is the most inhuman way two people can possibly relate to each other relating on the basis of how that relationship looks to others, or how something that you do looks to other people as they judge it the way they want to see it. And so what happens is, is though we're more connected, the connections are more fundamentally humanly impersonal, and they tend to substitute and narrow how we relate to each other. They also subselect for people more like us, so that there's, there's no texture in the relating, right? Like, I, my wife and I have been trying to go these little bonfires in our neighborhood with just people from our neighborhood. Our neighborhood, people in our neighborhood do not think the way we do on a lot of things. And just sitting at these bonfires and interacting with people who are very different from us is just very different than me talking after a staff meeting with staff here at High Point. And, and me being thrust into those—that would never have happened on my Facebook page or my Insta spam or whatever. Like, like, none of those things would have brought me together with people different from me that are my neighbors that circumstance and destiny have put me next to. And that I am called to love. Because remember, Christianly speaking, but besides your immediately family and the immediate spiritual family of the church, your physical neighbor, the person you bump into for any reason, is the most fundamental and prioritized object of love in your life. No one else. Right? And the third is conglomeration or governmentalization, which is 
as we, as we develop into a more complex society, what tends to happen is problems seem big, and they need to be solved by data and policy. And they tend to move up the ladder of social structure rather than down, which is called subsidiarity. What happens when that happens is you have to have larger amounts of money, and then you go, well, what do we do? Well, you can't ask individual persons what they want to do with individual persons. It's too big for that. It's too impersonal. So what you have to do is you have to look at data. The problem is, is that data relative to human beings, good data is extremely hard to come by. Most of it is terrible. And then secondly, you have to create a policy that has to work for everybody involved. And so that's really unhelpful too, because a lot of people need individualized plans. And so what you have to do to make sense of the data is you have to give it principles to interpret it because it looks different to different people, which means you have to determine it through a predetermined set of ideas, which we call ideology. You have an ideology, you use it to interpret the data, and then you fight for the policy you think is best, which creates political tribalism. So you're on a team, that team is intimate in a way, though not, but you do hate the other people. So you have a unscientific, pseudoscientific way to come up with one-size-fits-all realities that are too far away from the actual human people you're dealing with, which puts you on a team that you may not even want to be on, so that you really dislike the other people that are not on that team, and so that we can all hate each other. Right? Now, these and many other things lead naturally in modern life to the destruction and the weakening of fellowship. Now, if we will accept God's plan and truths about fellowship within Christ, we actually can participate in these other things that would normally weaken us and not have them weaken us. There's nothing inherent to digitized social networks that must destroy our bonds with each other. There's nothing inherently in the nature of being able to buy consumable goods or in the reality of having governmental institutions that accomplish things for us that must destroy our interrelationship with each other. It's our own worldliness and fleshliness that wants the easy route and takes these easy routes to substitute for the difficulty of having real relationships, real, real relationships with each other. This next slide is just in there if you want to read a specific statement about it later. Okay. What we, what we need to focus on is, is that the church, both universal but manifested locally, is God's sheltering, healing, and developing fellowship for everyone. It's a sheltering, and under that shelter, it's a healing and developing fellowship for all. Okay. Now, there's two main things that we need to look at when we think about that. The first thing is, is that you have to believe it. You have to believe that we, this group of people, and those watching online at this local church, and then other groups of people at other local churches, are actually that fellowship. You have to believe that. Some people just don't believe it because they don't believe in God, and that makes sense, <laughs> right? What doesn't make sense is to believe in Jesus and to say that you believe what he thinks and then to not believe that about the local church. Some people get confused because they believe, well, the church, Nick, isn't it like every Christian everywhere throughout all time? Yes. And you're like, well, I'm part of that. Okay, well, how exactly? Just because you say so? What is this, social media where you get to like raise awareness for something and score moral points? No, no. The only existing thing you can relate to in reality that is the universal church is a local church with people who you will naturally dislike. Quit kidding yourself, right? That's like saying, I believe in America, let's go destroy something. Or like, I believe in America, let's hurt my neighbor. Or I believe in America, let's, let's not improve America, depending on your politics on those comments. Like, something concrete must follow, and that concrete thing should be productive— 
towards an end that is loving towards real people who you are not naturally tribally connected with. And in Christ, you and I are part of the church, and the church only exists in relationship to you in a local church of people. In the scriptures, so um, in the second century, St. Cyprian of Carthage said this, and this sums it up pretty well. No one can have God for his father who has not the church as his mother. No one can have God as his father who does not have the church for his mother. There's two points there, obviously. One is actually that the church is actually the nurturing womb of the Christian life. That, that God declares certain truths and leads in his providential, and the church is actually like a mother. It's like a nurturing presence. It's a place where there is healing and so on. So it's part of it is that. But the main focus of Cyprian's idea is the idea that you can split those two up is just nonsense. You can't. And if you are committed to Jesus and you're not committed to the real human beings who believe in him, you're not committed to Jesus. I know that sounds harsh, but that's literally exactly what John says in 1 John. How can you say you love Jesus, who you have not seen, if you do not love your brother, meaning they're the spiritual brother of the believer in Christ, who is the local church? How can you say you love Jesus, who you haven't seen, if you won't love your brother, who you have seen? It's nonsense. It's false. You're kidding yourselves. It's delusion. Right? As you work through the scriptures and you look at the way God speaks about the church, the people of God, the descriptions of the church use words of extreme union. Just extreme union. Brother and sister. Stones cemented together into a living temple. Right? As you work through, for example, in— um, Let's look at just a couple of these quickly. In 1 Timothy 3, 14 and 16, a lot of, a lot of Christians have read the Bible. They, have, they, don't, they don't focus on what this verse actually says, right? It says, Paul says, I'm writing to you instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household. That is the church he's talking about, right? Which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Beyond all question, the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And he goes on to say something about the gospel. Because in his view, the church holds the gospel. It doesn't make the gospel true, but it holds the gospel. The two are inextricably linked, and the church is itself the pillar and the foundation, not of the fellowship, but of the truth itself. We don't make the truth truth, but we are together the ones who bear its witness and hold it tight and keep it from being amalgamated with falsehoods and so on. There's a you don't get much more extreme than the statement, the pillar and foundation of the truth. He's trying to make a point, right? In, sorry, in 1 Corinthians 12, he says, sorry, a new clicker. For we were all baptized by one spirit, so as to form one body, whether Jews or Gentiles, slave or free, and we were given of one spirit to drink. Now in verse 27, he says, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. I want you to see how matter of fact that is. If you have been given the spirit to drink, which is part of conversion and salvation, if you've accepted Christ as your Savior and Lord, you've received his forgiveness, you've experienced the miracle of regeneration, God has poured into you the spirit by which to drink, to transform you and to help you and to aid you. And if you have received that spirit, you are the body of Christ. And each one of you is a part of it, right? It literally says in this chapter, if, if one part of the body says it's not part of the body, does that mean it stops being part of the body? No, he says, of course not. You can deny this truth, but you can't escape it. Does that make sense? In the book of Romans chapter 12, 
the apostles are arguing a very similar thing. He says, just as—he's he's talking about the human body—just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. Notice that just as your body is bound together in one living union, just as that is true, so that is true of everyone who believes in Christ. And secondly, that each member belongs to all the others. One of the only other places that language is found in the New Testament is in re- reference to marriage. That when you marry someone, you belong to them and they belong to you. You belong to each other. Right? That's true in, of references to family. And it's true in references to what it means to be part of the body of Christ. So both the metaphor of being the body of Christ and the explicit statement of our belonging could not be more absolute. Ephesians 1, he's explaining something similar. Scripture says, And God placed all things under his—that's Jesus' feet—and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So he's saying, God has put everything under Christ's feet in his ascension, and his ruling as king of salvation, and he has made the church— the fullness of him. And Jesus fills the church with his fullness so that it can be his body in the world doing his things for his purposes. It's very difficult to imagine a more direct, absolute, clear set of statements designed for clarity and to alleviate misunderstanding, to make absolutely clear to every believer what their identity is as the body of Christ. And if, if you say, but, but Nick, listen, um, there's some really sucky churches. Yes, there are. Yes, there are. First Corinthians 12, when he talks about us being the body of Christ, I mean, the Corinthian church, like, there were guys in that church who were going to prostitutes and, like, suing each other and doing all—like, they were filled with pride and attacking each other and splitting into factions. I mean, like, it was a messy, ugly church. It doesn't change the facts. Just because we fail to conform to the truth doesn't mean we change the truth. It means we take responsibility with some humility for who we are and how we fail and how we're not what we were meant to be. And we ask for God's momentary mercies, which he gives freely, and then we move towards him and he brings us to be what we're meant to be. Because he is caring and loving and he wants to change us. And it is a huge and immense tragedy when churches are like that. Because listen, when you come to Jesus— let me say it this way. When you say you come to Jesus, you're going to become better or you're going to become worse. Either the Spirit of God is going to transform your heart into a gracious, loving person who believes in God's truths, are conformed to His image, and are loving towards other people, or you are going to—if that's not the case, you will become increasingly religious and self-righteous and legalistic in ways that will— pressurize and hurt and tear down other people. You won't be easily pleased or worshipful towards God and delighting in other people. You'll be angry and upset, and you'll create an increasingly ugly life. Religiosity in general will destroy, and when you come to Jesus, you will either become transformed into the properly transformative kind of religious that is giving yourself to the repetitions of goodness, or the ugly, self-righteous, weaponized kind of religion that will destroy others. Of course, that's true of committing yourself fully to any set of ideas, but not at least this one. When I was in seminary, I, I worked at this place called Hewitt Associates, and I, was, I worked the graveyard shift, and there was this guy that I worked with who was doing a PhD in Hebrew. 
And I asked him one time, because he had been a pastor, I asked him, why did he stop being a pastor and, and do a PhD in Hebrew to become a professor? And I figured he was just kind of like, well, I just wanted to go deeper, something like that. But this is what he actually told me. Um, he said, you know, I was a pastor of a church, and there was a, there was a lot of, like, unhealthy stuff going on. And I decided that I was going to clean things up. Like, I wasn't going to just let people abuse each other and hurt each other. I was going to, like, I was going to preach graciously, but I was going to confront the people who needed to be confronted. And he said, the spineless elders of this church were more concerned about what those people gave or about not creating a stir or something like that than the work that needed to be done so that the flock of God could be a place of nurturing life and love. Like, they—and they, they, then he looked at me. I, I remember to this day the look on his face. He said, Nick, I'll never be a pastor again because nobody fights for the church. Nobody. They're a bunch of spineless losers, even the ones who are supposed to govern it. There's a lot of hurt there, you know, and I hope today he's healed and restored whatever way God intended, but I remember feeling that way that like, yeah, that is human nature. Human nature is to be spineless and to be avoidant and to do those things, and that's not—that's not going to disappear right when you walk through these doors. We have to grow and become the kind of people who, who will fight for the church in the right way. But remember, it's not—the thing about it is, is that you're not fighting somebody you're trying to destroy, right? You're fighting for somebody that you're trying to make your brother and sister, or that already is your brother and sister. Like, you're fighting somebody that you—the goal is not to defeat them, but to, like, persuade them even. Does that make sense? And that's a different kind of fighting. It's a much more difficult kind. If you've ever literally been in a fight with somebody that you were trying not to hurt, it is ten times harder than being in a fight with somebody you just want to destroy. But that's how you have to fight for the church or support the people who are willing to, right? Okay, second lean quickly is if that's true, you and I, we need that fellowship. And therefore, you need to order your life around your participation and belonging in it. If you don't actively do that and make difficult choices to make that true, it's never going to happen. Because life outside the church is, of course, busy. And our lives are not naturally ordered towards the intimate kinds of covenantal fellowship that are part of family and church and intimate friendship. All of those things, real fellowship, has to be intentionally pursued by the pruning out of other things. Does that make sense? There's four very fundamental human needs that God provides for through the church. The first is just shelter and help. Like, life is going to beat some of us to death if we're out there on our own. Like, we helped 36 families last month that aren't even in the shelter of the church. The shelter of the church reached them, and they're not even under it, right? We care for people. We're there for them. We babysit each other's children. We— I mean, there, I hear stories all the time of small groups like helping other people, putting together things. I mean, just doing all kinds of like little stuff, delivering meals and calling people who just need to talk to somebody. Just ways in which people get just help from the body of Christ. Because in loving relationships, people seek to fulfill the needs of others. That's what love is. And I don't have to organize it or order it as the pastor. I just have to not get in the way. And people just love each other and they fulfill each other's needs. They help each other and they shelter each other. Right? There's this place in the book of Ecclesiastes where um, the writer says, wisdom, like money, is a shelter. Right? Because it buys time. It's, it's, it's additional resources so that you don't get destroyed by life. But the church is like an embodied wisdom. And it's, it is a certain kind of wealth. Friendship is wealth. People who love you is wealth. 
people who will stand with you when you need them is wealth. People who consider you closer than even a family is wealth. But some of us don't avail ourselves of it. We get beat to death by the world and by our lives because we won't really commit ourselves to be part of the fellowship that we need, right? The second is healing and growth, right? Obviously, this is a place where we— people can heal. It's supposed to be a nurturing and healing community. It's also a place where we grow, where we learn stuff we need to learn that we wouldn't learn anywhere else because nobody wants to talk about it or because people aren't qualified to talk about it or aren't interested or think it's false, right? Third is the purpose and employment. One of the things that makes people feel good about their lives and enjoy their lives and enjoy others is having something to do that matters, that matters to other people. Now, there are lots of ways that that can happen. But one of the ways it can happen, especially for people who can't find economic employment, is employment in the lives of other people, loving and caring for them, interacting with them, nurturing, volunteering, doing those kinds of things. And I know lots of people who, who struggled with feeling like their life mattered. And when they volunteered and just had something—we've had people come to High Point Church who are not Christians. I remember a few years ago, this, this lady who was a nominal Hindu came to High Point. She said, listen, I'm just super depressed, and my counselor asked me, just told me I should just volunteer somewhere, and I live down the street, so can I volunteer at your church? And we were like, yeah! So she, she was the receptionist for like two years, right? She came in. One of the main reasons for her depression was she was infertile. And um, Phil Porter, who would tell her about Jesus every time she saw her, um, prayed for her to conceive a child. And she did. In fact, one of the reasons why she's not still volunteering here is that she became a mother, which she had longed to do. And she came to one of our celebrations, and she's like, I, listen, I don't even know if I—she I, I, accepted Jesus, but it wasn't super clear whether it was in addition to some other things or—right? But she's like, listen, I, I credit my conception of my child and my ha- present happiness to the love I received here, right? There's an enormous amount of meaning and purpose that people receive from entering into fellowship. And then enjoyment and delight. Listen, um, I cannot tell you how many people I talk to inside the church and out when I can tell that they're hurting, they feel insecure, right? And they're broken in a lot of ways. One of the questions I ask now, it's one of the first—it's not one of the first five questions I ask, but it's one of the ones I ask in the first time I talk with them is I say, I say, okay, I want you to think about this for a minute. How many relationships in your life have you had that were significant relationships in which you felt enjoyed and delighted in by the person you were in a relationship with? Long-term, meaningful relationship in which you felt enjoyed and delighted in by the other person. And were any of those people your parents? Okay? It's one of the most definitive things I found about human beings. If they—if one of their parents, even one, they felt enjoyed and delighted by that parent for the majority of their childhood, or if they had a significant number of relationships where they felt truly delighted in and enjoyed by other people, they tended to be doing fine. And I cannot tell you how many people I talk to where that answer is zero. Or the, they, were, they were transient relationships, but they weren't the bread and butter of their lives. And I want, I'll tell you something. When people come in this place, they come in here, they should find their sins confronted. Somewhat, often somewhat impersonally from, with the sermon, right? Right, I stand, I stand, I know this, this is presumptuous, but I stand in the role of God declaring his truths over all people so that you individually be like, is that true for me? Do I need to grapple that? And then when I quit, I don't go individually and start attacking people. I, we all go around and affirm, and, and we look at what God is doing. We say, that is so amazing, and we delight in and enjoy each other because that's the way relationships are supposed to be. You're supposed to be enjoyed by other people. People are supposed to love being around you because you're a human being. Now, 
Um, if you go through the New Testament, I'm not going to go through each one of these individually, fear not. Um, if you go through the New Testament, you'll see that over and over again in lots of different ways, God explicitly says how he uses lots of things to make the church that kind of community. Right? He builds up our vibrancy in, in fire as we worship together and as we, we love one another. He persuades and witnesses through our unity together, it says in John 13. Um, he talks about um, growth through practice. So you can watch the best preachers in the world on video, right? You don't need me for that, right? But you need each other as the laboratory of love. You have to actually love other real people. You can't do that online. Not really, right? Protection and vigilance by having elders and pastors in your life and small group leaders and close Christian friends. They're watching over you. I don't, if those of you who are hunters, if, you, just, if you've ever tried to sneak up on a deer, which is way smarter than a turkey, or 15 turkeys, I would take a deer any day of the week. You just can't beat 30 eyes. And when you're around other believers that are really acting towards your well-being, there's just more people looking out for you. If you're really open and humble to receiving what they're going to tell you, right? And then healing and help and enjoyment and delight and so on, right? So let's just end with a couple minutes on, so what? Like what are—because the people are, are often tell me—you've heard me say this before, but Nick, what are we supposed to do? What's the application? How is this like—how is this really real, right? And to normally I like to answer— don't be an infant intellectually. Like, just think about this for 10 minutes, and you'll come up with a thousand things. Like, ask God in your heart. Say, God, what would you have me do with this? Like, what are the implications of this? What's, what's the truth that I should interact with? If you have any questions about that, type them in right now to the Ask Me Anything thing, and we'll answer them in just a second. But um, let me just give you a couple examples. One is, start by embracing God's united understanding of his own gospel and his own church. Right? In God's mind, there is absolute unity— between his gospel of salvation and his community of salvation, the living church. The work of the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead is the same work of the Spirit that is raising people from the dead and knitting them together in one body of Christ. Like, they are, this, they are so enmeshed they cannot be divided, right? And, and to quote something Jesus said in another place, those things that God has joined together, let men not try to pull asunder. You have to believe it. And if you don't like the church, great. You're probably right. May, then it's the calling of your life to make it great. I mean, that's how I felt when I was in college. I was like, this place stinks. They're anti-intellectual. They don't care about people my age. They, you know, on and on and on. The sermons are boring. The blah, 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 blah. And I had a choice to make whether I was just going to leave and do other things or whether I was going to be part of making the church great. And the reason I chose the latter, generally speaking, is that I believed what God said about it. Right? Secondly is, you have to shape your life to be part of the fellowship. If you don't shape your life to be part of the local church, it won't be. That is an active action that you have to take based on priorities that you have to execute with discipline. It doesn't just happen. You have to—for some families, it's just, you got to tell the kids, you have to decide you're just going to church every Sunday. Online, in person, whatever. You're just going. You go to church. That's what you do. I don't want to hear it. Right? Sometimes it's like, I'm going to—let's look, I'm going to read my Bible at this time, or I'm going to go to this Bible study on these mornings. I'm going to be with those people, or I'm going to tell people—I'm going to invite three of the people in my life that I know are pretty godly. I'm going to invite them that if they ever tell me something they fear for me, that I will not be defensive. Or if I am, they can call me out on it. I'm going to receive their vigilance. There's lots of ways you can apply this, but you have to order your life to be part of the fellowship. Does that make sense? Third is fight for the church's health or at least support those willing to do it. Fight for the church's health, or at least support those willing to do it. If you have pastors or elders or leaders that are willing to fight for the church's health, 
in such a way as to fight for unity and purity at the same time. Not people who are seeking to be destroyers or kill the person that they're fighting against, but who are simultaneously trying to hold to the truth and yet bring about unity and win over the person they're fighting with, doing it in principled ways with a lot of self-discipline and a lot of temperance. For God's sake, literally support those people, or the church will never be good because those people will be alone and they'll slowly get eaten alive and they will leave. Fourth is invest your heart and your treasure in her. Volunteer. Part of working hard and having more to share, share with the local church. Give generously. We'll talk about that a little bit more in the Nehemiah series because there's a, a really focused text on that. Interact with the fellowship devotionally. That is, every time you interact with the fellowship of the church, other believers in worship, listening to sermons, whatever it is, do it devotionally, knowing what it is. Change your attitude about it. Listen, I, I've been, I remember being in the same sermon, like, I'll be like visiting another church. We were like camping or something. And I'm kind of tired and I'm in the service and I'm not enjoying it. I'm, I, I'm like, man, if I was pastor this church, I would change these 19 things and blah, blah, blah. These people are incompetent. And then I just like, either I wake up to the truth or the spirit is like, um, you're stupid. And I go, wait, that's, I'm, I'm not here to curse. That's not my job. My, my, I came to worship. I'm supposed to be worshiping. And I've changed my attitude and the church service didn't get better. But my interaction with it did. And when I interacted with it devotionally instead of critically, it helped me. God taught me something, and I began to interact with other people lovingly, and it made my attitude better. It at, at least, it at least gave me an opportunity to grow in humility. And then sixth, love her. Love her. The church is the body of Christ. In Ephesians 5, it says the church is the bride of Christ. Okay, if I have a guy friend— and he treats my wife badly, he's not going to be my friend. If he speaks badly about my wife, if he runs around— if, Listen, if I complain about my wife, what I need him to do is be like, yep, she's your wife, though. What are we going to do? Like, I, like, I get you. My wife is on that— t-. Like, how somebody treats my family and my children and my wife indicates their attitude towards me, their commitment to me, their fellowship towards me, whether or not they love me. You, the church is your greatest opportunity to love Jesus. Loving the church and loving your neighbor are your most fundamental opportunities. And by entering the church, you make the church all the people in it, your neighbor. And so love her. Right? The Bible calls her a whore and a prostitute, because that's how she often behaves, and the bride of Christ, spot being made spotless and white simultaneously. And that is our complicated identity. But we are becoming his spotless bride. And that is how we are to see ourselves and what we must see ourselves becoming. And it's the thing that we pursue. And the other identity is what we know we can easily become if we take our eyes off him. And what we always eschew and what we always praise God for his mercy in taking us back and loving us, knowing that that is what we can easily be. Love her. And it'll change everything about how you interact with her. We do not have to be a people poor in resilience. We don't have to be. Modernity and consumption and digitalization and governmentalization and all these other forces, they don't have to make us weak. They don't have to make us unresilient and brittle. God has given us more than what we need to thrive in godliness, 
to love one another, and to enjoy and delight in life, his people, and God himself. And he is by his Spirit giving some of us the courage to trust him in that for the first time or more deeply. And you need to embrace it. You need to believe it. You need to take hold of it. You need to, you need to pursue it. And if you do, he will make us a resilient people, a loving people, and a persevering people. And we will be—he will shelter us, and we will shelter others in their time of need. Fathers, we take just a few minutes and have a moment to respond with singing. I know that's not a big response relative to what we can give ourselves to after, but help us now, Holy Spirit, to immediately— emotionally, reasonably, and truthfully praise you, love you, unconditionally devote ourselves to you, and then to work this out as the day goes on. Pray in Jesus' name. Um, Before Tony starts,